Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 116 of Control the Controllables. To those of you that have been listening throughout the series, you'll know that I'm really interested in the data side of the sport and here, in my opinion, is one of the best in the business. If we can, every coach out there now can build in an off-court video session, whether that's once a week, once a month, once a quarter, I think it's going to add massive value to player development. I really do. And we just don't do it. It's not because culturally, we've never done it. And that is Mike James. Mike James comes from the UK, He was a tennis coach and a few years ago, he made the move over to to learning all about data collection within tennis and he wanted to work at the very highest level of the game. He's then spent time working with Stan Varinka and Magnus Norman. He's worked with Misha Kekmanovic and he's working now with the current French Open women's champion, Iga Svontek and doing a great job with her as well. We dig into lots of different areas, lots of unanswered questions. You know, there's lots of cynics out there about the data side of the game, and rightly so, because I don't think it's been done so well in tennis yet. I think tennis is way behind other sports. But Mike is certainly making a move towards amending that, and I thoroughly enjoyed our chat before we start with the chat, I just want to want to mention uh, quite a lot of you have been asking about whether Soto Tennis Academy is open this summer, and it's a big resounding yes. We're here, we're waiting for you guys to come, get in touch with us, and we can sort all the documentation out that you need, and we look forward to seeing lots of you at the Academy this summer. But now I'm going to pass you over to Mike James. So, Mike James, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Dan. I'm in the epicentre of European tennis at the moment. I think you know the place very well. I absolutely do, and it's great to have you at the Academy this week. And like I said beforehand, a little bit of a shame we're still doing this via video call, uh, but it is it is the way of the world right now. And, and, and also, Mike, I just want to clarify because... We have a lot of British tennis listeners and there is a couple of Mike Jameses and I've been I've been guilty of getting them mixed up in the past. So this is Mike James, who is now very much a data analyst in what he's doing. It's not the Mike James that coaches at Halton. Yeah, I'm the uh, I'm the other Mike James for sure. Um, and, and it's quite funny, actually. If, if the, the, the real Mike James is listening to this, um, we actually had uh, two players play each other at Nationals maybe seven or eight years ago, and they were talking with each other after the match, and they were saying, oh, who coaches you? And one said, Mike James coaches me, and the other one went, no, but Mike James is my coach. So it was a bit of a funny moment, actually, yeah. at Nationals. 
And I would imagine it's quite a popular name anyway in the UK, but I, it is it is certainly because uh, you both are such well-respected coaches and now in, in terms of what you're doing, I know you've moved into a slightly different field. It certainly was confusing. But yeah, I, I normally start, Mike, with saying, what's the journey into tennis? But I think I think what might be quite a nice place to start for us today is give us a little background into your tennis and your tennis coaching and then how you then made the plunge from a tennis coach into being an analyst, because I think that's a really important point that I'd like to get into in the chat as well. No, Dan, I think great question. Uh, it's almost I'm going into my second career really now. My first career was as a tennis coach and, and I went into tennis coaching after my A-levels and always had the ambition to work on on the pro tour in professional tennis so my journey has been almost from tots to tour so I think Craig Veal said that a couple of weeks ago actually so I'll steal his uh, his phrase there um, and went through the system coaching qualifications you know started off at some outdoor clubs working in ladies coffee mornings tots tennis junior groups um, getting promoted to some head coach jobs being involved in the LTA performance ladder, you know, in some performance centres, some HPCs, Loughborough, Nottingham, these sort of things. But I felt that pathway for me, because I wasn't an ex-player and didn't have a good playing background, that it was going to be very tough for me in the British system to, to break through into professional tennis. And I think at the time, my ambition to be in professional tennis, probably around 25, 26, I was doing performance coaching, you know, with the LTA, you know, funded centres. And I could probably see maybe 10 or 15 years away, I might get a chance of being in the big leagues within British tennis. At the time, I was at uh, Loughborough University under, under James Buswell. It was my tennis. And they had the two facilities. They had the, the Loughborough University and the Nottingham facility. So Nottingham was where the, uh, the Galacticos were. So you had Leon there. Rosetsky, Mark Taylor, Leighton Alfred and, and the pro players. And then Loughborough was more the juniors and, and the under-14 players. You were Getafe. That's Real Madrid <laughs> and you were Getafe. <laughs> Brilliant. I love that analogy. I, I, I'd steal that from you. So what actually happened, and I like your phrase, you, you talk about tennis as a, as a game of moments. And I also think that is the same in life as well. And in 2015, uh, 14, 2014, the, the LTA changed their system, which they're, they're prone to do, and the funding was, was lost from Loughborough. So effectively, I, I, I lost my coaching job just through the, the funding not being there. And if I go back a little bit to 2010, and this is for any coaches listening today, I, I would thoroughly recommend this. I was searching for a mentor or somebody that had been there and got the T-shirt because I was struggling to do that in British tennis. So I had some good, I say mentors in blocks, you know, when I was doing my level four, Martin Weston was great with me, Keith Reynolds. Um, but I was really looking and searching for somebody on an international level. And in 2010, I attended an RPT conference in London. And there was a guy called Claudio Pistolesi who was speaking at that conference. And in fact, now, as I'm saying this, I think you did a presentation. I did, yeah. yeah. And, um, and Claudio at the time was coaching Daniela Hanchikova. And he did this presentation, really liked his philosophy and the way he came across and his presence. 
And he said at the end of the presentation, anybody that would like to stay in contact with me, please you know, come and find me after the session. I was the first person out the seat, straight up to him, love what you're about, can I come and shadow you? And he said, absolutely, you can come and shadow me. I'm in Germany at the moment at the Czech Pro Base, and this is where me and Daniela train when we're not on tour. So I immediately booked the next flight I could to Munich, uh, got out there for around two weeks and shadowed him. And it was a, it was a good facility. It was like a, a member's club, but they had some private courts. So Daniela was there. They had Tommy Haas dropping in. Becca would, would play a few practice sets there. It was a really good environment to be around. And again, it's only two weeks, isn't it? So it's, you know, you're not going to know everything in two weeks. And then I said to him, okay, where are you going? Where were you going to be then? And he said, well, I'm traveling fully and this sort of thing. So, you know, that was 2010, go now forward to 2014 when the funding was was dropped at Loughborough. In that period, I'd been going out and seeing him in different places when he wasn't traveling or wasn't a tournament in a training block. So it was Italy, America, Germany, England, etc. So I was getting to know him really well. And then when the funding got dropped at Loughborough, he was like, I'm setting up my own academy or training base. He doesn't like the word academy. You hate me for saying that. And it was in Jacksonville, Florida. So effectively, I was based in Jacksonville, Florida every July and every December. And he would have a series of professional players that were linked in with his academy. And that's when I started traveling on the future circuit and challenger circuit, etc. Fair play to you. And, and, and on that, and again, for coaches listening, how much money was he paying you for, for going out to spend two weeks with him in Germany? Zero. Zero. Because he also wasn't charging me anything because in some ways I would have paid for his time to be around him, to be involved, to see what he's doing. But he really took me under his wing. He could see I was keen. He could see I was passionate. And, you know, I, I didn't have a, you know, a, a girlfriend at the time. I had no kids. And that's how I wanted to invest my money effectively to, to go and shadow him and see what is it like for a, a former top 100 player coach who's coached 10 top 100 players, um, want to slam with Monica Sellers? What does that look like? I know what it looks like at uh, HPC or national squads, regional squads, et cetera, in the UK, but what does it look like, you know, at that end? And, if, and the answer to that would be it's simple, but it's who's saying those things. So he, would, he made 71 in the world, was career high. He, he, he then, um, when he left Hunchy Covey, he'd been working with Robin Sodling. So it's it's like the man motivation type mentality, isn't it? It's sometimes it, someone can say the same thing, but if it's someone else saying it, it has a bigger value. So that was one of the biggest takeaways I had from him at the time. But he gave me a chance to actually dip my feet in the water with professional players. Yeah. And you have to you have to see it to be it. And, 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 and I think that it's a great lesson for people listening to, to learn. You know, I think there's, there's lots of people that talk about wanting to work at a certain level in the game, but actually giving your time for free to put yourself in that environment so that you can, one, become comfortable with it you know, which I think is, is massive. I think, you know, we tend to think that all of a sudden they turn into robots and monsters and do all sorts of scary things. Whereas actually, I think one of the biggest things is once we see it, it's like, well, actually, oh, right. Oh, well, I, I can do this. This is not, this is not something that's out of my, 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 out of my capabilities. 
And I just don't think there's enough people that do give their time and say, do you know what? This is where I want to go. So I'm going to go and spend time around the best people, around the level that I want to be at. If I wanted to work with someone top 50 in the world, in reality, I'd probably have to give my time for free or for very little to get the foot in the door. If I'm going to work with someone four or 500 in the world, and I've done that a few times now, I've I've earned my stripes to be to 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 hold the value there, and I, I think that happens throughout the sport. So well done to you for doing that. Thank you. And I also have to mention at the academy was Brian Gottfried, who was a tennis legend. I mean, he was number three in the world. Borg McEnroe final, the the, the one that everyone remembers. Brian played Borg in the semi-finals. Uh, Brian as a coach, coached Michael Chang, um, the Jensen brothers, Todd Martin. So I was immersed in world-class knowledge and an environment. However, um, I still felt inadequate because I hadn't played professionally. And, and when we're talking with the players at the change of ends and, and Claudio can say, I played Jimmy Connors third round of US Open on centre court or Brian can reel off many, many things. What, what do I bring to the table? Apart from some passion, some enthusiasm, some energy, you know, so that's almost where I fell into technology. I like technology. I was by the latest iPhone. I'm a sucker for marketing on these things. Um, I, like, I like stats. I like video. And I used it in my coaching when I was coaching juniors. So that's when I started to traveling on the road. As you know, Dan, there's a hell of a lot of downtime, you know, particularly on a match day. The player plays first on at 10 a.m. You could be done by 12. And then, you know, they're not training the rest of the day, they're recovering, they're eating and, and chilling out. So that was when I started to put together the analytics a little bit and basic stuff. I mean, really basic sort of clipping the match, you know, in you know, chopping out the in-between parts and plugging the, 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 the HDMI cable into the, the TV in the hotel room and just going back and forth with the players. And, and that's where I could feel that I could, I could change almost or add to Claudia and Brian's coaching, if that makes sense, because they were pure players, great coaches. I could add almost the modern area to, to the coaching. And, and how did you add? Yeah, well, I mean, apart from chopping the match up and putting it on a TV screen, you know, the I started to, to try to track things that I thought was interesting. Yep. So, you know, I was getting looking at momentum, I was looking at what was happening when the player first point after the change of ends. I was trying to spot trends because you'd analyze one match. It's like a series on Netflix. Okay. I stick on the first episode of Save the Last Dance. I like the idea of the Chicago Bulls and I like Michael Jordan, but I have no idea of the rest of everything that happens in that series. So I need to watch the 10 hours. It's the same with a tennis match. You know, you cannot get any trends when the value only happens when you have a certain amount of matches in a certain situation. So what I mean by that is you're not, you can't take three matches from grass, three matches from hard, three matches from Mexico at altitude, two from a lefty, two from a righty, and, and find quality trends. I still think you would find some trends, but you're not going to get a great data set out of that, if that makes sense. And is that the same also then with... I guess one of my pet peeves is when I see a data set that has a Pelka at seven foot in with Schwartzman at five foot two, 
with completely changing game styles and, and ways of, of playing the game. How early on did you bear that in mind? Or is that something that, because I know we've had conversations off air that you do now bear that in mind, but is that, were you guilty of throwing all of that data into the same set at, at first? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because, I mean, if I'm honest, you know, Craig's stuff that's obviously very well known at the moment around that time was only just coming out. And then apart from Craig's stuff, there's nothing. I mean, tennis is so behind on other sports. It's, it's in the dark ages now. Yeah. And certain people that go, oh, look at the Hawkeye data, look at the visuals, look at this. No, 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 no. We are way behind other sports. There was a study done in 2010 the college in the states and they, they did 23 different sports of looking at analysis and when i say analysis and, and data and everything i'm adding the video and the visual part to this because 60 percent of the population are visual learners okay so the, the the actual watching yourself back has a massive value not just the data so you know i know some analysts are just providing reports and and shoving that in the players faces but the coaches find that hard to understand and interpret, and for sure the players are. You know, when I'm working with players, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, arguably, I'm, the video is the headline, and then data is sort of the, the backup around what I'm showing them on the video side. And, and on that point, Mike, and I think, you know, having spoke to now some very well-respected coaches that have worked with you, you know, the word on you is very complimentary, you know, and that you're doing things to, to a very high level. Do you think almost to do it to that level, you have to have that tennis coaching background rather than just somebody coming into the sport that maybe doesn't have that tennis coaching background? Well, it's a, it's a really interesting subject. So obviously I know there are people that are in performance analysis. That's what we call that in the UK that are not from a tennis background. Now, they've gone and studied uh, performance analysis, sports science at university. I did not do this. My issue with tennis, more than other sports, is I think you need to know the intrinsic nuances around tennis to find the subtle differences that are going to make a difference, if that makes sense. Yeah. So traditional performance analysis is, is coding, putting up some dashboards, and showing some headlines. Whereas I think the sport is so deep, deep enriched with information. I think you need to know and be an expert and live and breathe tennis. So your answer is yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And tell us that process. So for those listening, you know, you have worked in Stan Varinka's team. You've worked in Misha Kekmanovic's team. And currently uh, out at the academy, you're, you're working at at Iga Swiatek's team. So how, how does the role of a data analysis, how does your role fit in to the team, which is obviously ultimately, I guess they're only bringing you on board because they want to win more tennis matches. So how are you playing that role within the team? Well, that's an interesting question because um, with, with Stan, so if I go back to the, the situation with, with, with Stan and, and Magnus, um, me and Claudio were working with Antti Pavic, who's 230 in singles at the time, squeezed into qualifying at the US Open. Um, and again, going back to life, you know, life is a series of moments, Ante squeezed in the, at the cutoff the last week before you know, he needed to get the ranking into that cutoff. Um, he, he squeezed in, so we did not know we were going to the US Open until the, the, the very last minute. And 
Then at the US Open, as you know, you network in the, the players' lounge, you're talking with people, and, and Claudio messaged me and said, I'm, I'm sitting with Magnus Norman, I'm having a coffee, do you want to come and meet him? Sat there, had a coffee, he said, what do you do? I said, I'm doing this in the team, I'm, I'm helping the, the players out with analysis and uh, game development, scouting, etc. Nothing too exciting from him, he was like, okay, that's interesting. And then a month later, I was at La Manga Club on holiday, and I just get an email from him saying, confidential, titled Stan Wawrinka. And I was eating at the time when I was nearly choking on what I was eating. So I looked at the email, read the email, and he was basically asking me, can you compare Stan's game before his knee injury and after his knee injury? Because I feel that there's something different going on. I think I know what it is, but I want some data and video to back it up. Okay, I'd never done a project like that before, never with a player with that level. And I said, yes, part of me is like, it's confidential. What's the worst that can happen? So um, he gave me two months of preparation. I analysed over 40 matches. He flew me out to his academy, uh, good to great in Stockholm. And then I'm sitting there. Uh, he has, he, or not he, but, but the, the, the founding directors, they have four boardrooms at Good to Great, and they're all titled after a Grand Slam. So I have the US Open boardroom, French Open boardroom, et cetera, and they're, and they're all colour-coordinated to the slams, and then there's photos. So he took me into the Wimbledon boardroom. There's Bjorn Borg on the wall with a Wimbledon trophy, big touchscreen TV, sits me down. Do you want a coffee? Absolutely. And then he's like, right, away you go. And it's, it was one of those uh, surreal moments, out-of-body experiences where you're sitting there with one of the most high-profile coaches in the world, showing him about his player that he's basically gone and done amazing things with, you know, best ranking, slams, Olympics, Davis Cup, it goes on and on and on. Fortunately for me, the, the, the two hours went very, very fast and he liked what I showed him. Uh, he felt he had a, a good enough amount of content to go into pre-season. This is 2018 now, Dan. And the relationship grew from there. So then when he did the pre-season and he was happy with the information that, that I showed him, that he then showed Stan, I was then going into 2019. I, I only worked with them for, for match scouting. Okay. So... I'm happy to share with you. I scouted um, Djokovic US Open, Tsitsipas French Open, Dimitrov French Open, uh, Rafa Paris. So obviously when you're working with someone like Mavrinka, they weren't, no disrespect to the other players, they were not, they didn't want me to scout the players that they were playing first, second, third round, but they wanted the meteor players that when they felt that they needed an extra one or two percent. Yeah. So, so that was the Vavrinka situation, if you like, with Magnus Norman. On, on that mic. Yeah, go ahead. What sort of information do these guys at that level of the sport want on their opponents? And what I mean by that, to add a bit of context to that, to context to that question, is, is it around shot selection? Is it around scoreboard strategy? You know, mm-hmm. how they perform, serve direction? What, what sort of detail are they after? Okay, so I'll, I'll give you the insights into sort of how I would set up a scouting report. So everyone get your pen and paper ready. The first thing I do is I split the, the game plan from juice side and ad side. Yeah. Okay. Because you're effectively, you've got when you're serving, when you're returning. Okay. But then you have when you're serving from juice, when you're serving from ad, because players have favorite serves from each side generally. Yep. And, and then they have 
the favourite first ball after serve that they also want to play. Then also you get trends with certain players approach better on, on certain sides. They favour certain serves on, on certain sides. When you talk about the score, I do look at that. And if I'm honest with you, the best players in the world, they are very, very good throughout the season. So when you go and, and, and code them and look at them for the season, at keeping, you know, almost even on your 1540s, your game-ending points, they'll keep that very, very close. Well, I find the difference is what changes when you go down the rankings, the players do lean towards their favourite serve more often. And you could argue and go, maybe that's why they're there in, in, in a very small area. That's one reason the difference that sets the best guys to the, the guys that are a little bit further down. Um, so obviously, so you've got the juice side, you've got the ad side, and then you have to link to the score because if you're on return, 77% of break points come on the ad side. And you cannot get around that because the score dictates that. You can only break on return at 15.40. Everything else is on the ad side. So I do go more heavy when we're talking about return patterns or strategies. I'm more heavy on the on the ad side yep. because the, the, the game or the set or the match is more likely to end on that side. So there's a little bit of an insight to the, the scouting side, if you like. Great. And, and, and on that, Mike, I guess my curiosity is then around, you know, how much you're digging out and saying, well, this is this is an easy set as an example. So Djokovic is serving at 5-1 compared to Djokovic serving at 6-5. Or, or on the same, on the same part of that, you know, is there changes? Are you pulling out that level of detail for these for these players? Yes, I'm looking at many things. I'm looking at when the player makes the most errors, when the player hits the most aces, double faults, these things, because there's trends with this. There's trends with this. Ultimately, the tennis match has the beginning, middle, and end. It's like a story. Yeah. So, and also. You know, if you listen to, to great coaches like Alistair Hyam and on Momentum, it goes like this, up and down, up and down. So absolutely, I'm pulling out this information. And what I can't do today is go, you know, this is the average on this, this is the average on this, because I genuinely believe, like you talked about with Schwartzman and Isner, um, when I was working with Stan and, and Magnus, his zero to four for the season was nearly 60%. Okay, yeah. the headline that everyone talks about is 70%. Yeah. So there's a 10% difference over the season. That's a lot of points that we're going into five to eight plus nine, where you're touching the ball two, sorry, three and four times plus. So if I'm now working and I get a call from Wiley Apalka's coach tomorrow, maybe that looks different. Maybe it's above, I know it's above 70% with those guys. Yeah. So, you know, you cannot, I totally agree with you. And I listen to many podcasts and, you know, I totally agree. If you're doing the highest level of, of analysis, you cannot just chuck everybody in the same pot and, yeah. and stir it around. Because yeah. what are the sport would, there was a photo in Miami of John Isner and um, Schwartzman practicing. Yeah, so hot, yeah. if, if they were boxers, they would never spar. Yeah. If they were basketball players, they would not be in the same position. If they were playing football, they would not be in the same position. In tennis, they share the ring and they ding, ding, and away we go. Yep. So for me, it's about like number one, showing the video, okay? Backing that up with data, 
So data is not at the forefront, you know, to, to the in the player's face or the coach's face. And then, you know, you're you're then looking at the strategy. You know, so so why are we doing this? And you're absolutely right, they're doing it to win more tennis matches because yeah. that's what they're paying me to do. However, eager and 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 and, and Misha, their setups actually is more about game development. Yep. So their priority, so with, with Stan and Magnus, it was winning more tennis matches. With Eager and Misha, it's game development. What is game development and why game development? Well, Eager's born 2001. She's 19. So yep. let's take away her ranking. Let's take away she's won the French Open. Let's look at her game and where she can improve in, in all of these different situations Let's have some video and data to back up what's going on on the practice court and let's keep it fresh. And that's how I came across them. Um, I can take no credit for the French Open situation. I started working with, with Piotr Shierspatowski, her head coach, first week of November. And the reason they contacted me was their off-season for WTA was like three months. They yeah. finished after the French Open. So he wanted some content to keep the practice court fresh. So this is probably my main area, actually, Dan. Yeah, I'm, I want to jump into the game development stuff, but I, I have something I have to go back to that's for, for my curiosity. So if we take Stan Varinka, it doesn't matter if it's Stan. I'm not talking about your personal situation with Stan. If we take a player like that, a Djokovic, a Maria, let's say, let's say they are 60% zero to four points in general. Is it different... And are you looking at that difference in a set that might be... So let's take Djokovic playing Andy Murray. It might be from zero, from love all first set to three all. It might be that that 60% of the points are played between zero and four. Maybe then between five all and seven six, the absolute business end where both of them go into lockdown mode, <laughs> that it's now 45% zero to four. I guess my question is, are you looking at that? And do you tend to see fluctuations in those bigger moments at the business ends of sets? So I will say 100% yes. And the only, I'll, I'll give one of the differences now to you that is sprung to mind, where the rally length um, from our data set is longer is break point second serve. Okay. Break point second serve, we tend to, you know, we don't see two touches of the ball bum. The rally goes longer. After that, from a score point of view, when you talk about like first six games, three all, and then we go, you know, three all to six three. Okay. You know, is, is it is the rally length massively just changed? Generally not. Generally not. But, you know, there's always the anomalies. You know, I heard you talk about the other day, Medvedev winning... Um, is it 46% of the points or 44% of the points of winning the match-ish? Again. Opelka over Medvedev. Yeah. 44% Opelka won, but he yeah. won the match. Yeah. yeah. How, however, I think it was, was it three tie breaks or two tie breaks? I think it was six, four in the third in the okay, end. Six, four in the third. And we could take 100 matches like that and that would be the one in the 100 that that happens with. Yeah. So from my point of view... What's amazing about going into analysis and looking at all of these things within tennis is I think it's the scoring system creates a real challenge and deep dive to, you know, I'm the performance analysis department for Igor Swiatek or, or Stan Wawrinka, or, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm solely responsible for their data, their numbers and pulling out gems 
to show the coaches because you know what I would say is the other thing that's happened in the last few years is that um, I'll get the call to review a player's season yeah again for this for the practice court so so Colin Beach you gave me a call back in November wanted me to do this with Kyle Edmund you know and 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 I do what how I would say and it almost happens all the time everybody that's ever called me any player any tour coach they never give me an area of focus. Not one person has ever done this. Please find this out. Please find this out. They go blanket cover, MRI scan on the player. Okay, doctor, give me the MRI scan. Give me the full download. And then I'm going to go and take the gems and, and go on the practice court with it. And what I would say is, as a rule of thumb, is that I probably give 80% of confirmed learnings. So what do I mean by that? That I'm giving 80% that the coach has feel and now they've got some data and video to back up to show the player, which they're happy about. And then 20% that they weren't aware of, which they're over yeah. the moon about, because now they've got some fresh content and input to implement when they need to. Because the coach is the artist, I'm the scientist. You know, So I'm giving them facts, and then it's up to them how they develop and deliver that. Now, don't get me wrong, with different teams, I'll have more involvement than, than others. You, you know, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I'm going off on one now. And is your, is your relationship then with the coach, not with the player? Yes. Yeah. And it has to be, it has to be. So, you know, as much as the players, you know, the invoice at the end of the month, it's the player's bank account that's paying me. The player knows I'm around. Um, it has to go through the coach. You know, I know a couple of, of good analysts, that, that have been fired for overstepping the mark because it's sensitive information. And the coach is with the player 24-7. The coach is eating with the player, traveling with the player, living and breathing it with the player. So who am I to come in and start to dictate the practice court literally with my personality and getting involved with that? You know, out here this week, you know, me and Piot have had some great conversations behind the scenes around practice and and these sort of things and, you know, linked to the data and, and, and serves and returns, et cetera. And it's the best way. It's the best way. And it keeps it clean. It keeps it fresh. Um, and there's no misunderstanding. And the other thing is I'm working with foreign players nine times out of ten. So also the, you've got to make sure the communication and language barrier, we don't have that um, issue there as well. That's difficult for a tennis coach. You in your heart are a tennis yeah. coach. So, so you know, is, is that then become a difficult thing for you to not say something? Absolutely not, because I have, I, I genuinely, this is what, what the biggest thing I learned from Claudio and Brian was empathy. And they had no egos. And as much as, you know, now and again, you, you would love to sort of be in the coach's literally in the coach's seat. For me, I've got the best of both worlds. I have a role now where I don't have to travel, but I can travel when I want to. That's minus the pandemic a little bit. I can be in the player's box, but I'm instead of being the front seat, I'm the back seat. Um, but I have an involvement and I have, I'm having these really interesting, intricate conversations with coaches and coaches teams that I never would have had in the coaching world that I was living. Because even with Claudio and Brian, Lord, do you respect the best player I physically coached and I still support now remotely with Claudio was Antti Pavic. Antti Pavic singles got to 230 when we were working with him in doubles 105 before the pandemic and now he's full doubles. 
you know, again, it, it was that thing of going, well, how many more years before I crack, you know, the, the big leagues, where the, where the, let's be honest, where the money is, where, you know, now I have a, a wife and a, and a young family and it's like, if I'm going to be on the road or away, there needs to be a reward for that. It can't be yep. for, for when it was at 25, earning my stripes, traveling and, and, and picking up the, the gems from these coaches. I promise you I'm going to move to game development, but I have one more curiosity piece that I want to pick up on. And we've had Craig on the podcast, actually two more. There's one that I challenged him on that I never, I was never satisfied with his answer. And maybe you might satisfy my, my answer. And that is what a net point, what is the criteria for what a net point is because my understanding in the statistics that we see quite commercially that come from Craig is, is, is around if you have two feet inside the baseline, then, and the point finishes with you two feet inside the baseline, that is counted as a, as a net point. So how do we get a consistency of criterias? Okay. So, I think what you mean, so two feet past the service line, not the baseline for no, sure. The baseline, I believe. Okay, so, so this is this is another this is a hot topic I could talk for for two more hours. And and now being in the data world, so I have a good relationships with Hawkeye Emphasis, these sort of companies. We are massively, massively inconsistent as a support uh, as a sport around this. We have IBM at two of the slams, and we now have emphasis at two of the slams. And they're then buying in certain information, but not all information from Hawkeye. And then they're churning out the Hawkeye information, presenting it slightly differently, and then adding some cherries on top. So as much as the commentators dive into the Hawkeye data and, and, and some of them love it and, and get involved in it, you know, we're still a mile off getting it right. And that's why I have a job full-time with, with a professional player, because eager eager played Konya last match Miami Open okay it was posted all over Twitter that there were 40 winners in that match there were 36 winners so there was four there was a discrepancy of four yeah. some people are like who cares I care because the data company that are doing that have got it wrong and the, yeah. it, and the reason they've got it wrong is because they will have an analyst a student at uni working for these companies that will be in the box at the tournament and they will do the human part of the coding. So Hawkeye will track, you know, it's a laser system, right? So it tracks the ball, it tracks the reps per minute, it tracks the flight path, et cetera, et cetera. This is correct. As long as it's calibrated properly. Some of the players did not think at the Australian Open it was calibrated properly because they used the Hawkeye Live. But then there's other things around unforced errors, forced errors that a, a guy in a box either remotely or at the tournament is physically punching that in. I now, did that job. I did that. I did that job at Wimbledon many, year, many years ago. Hey, <laughs> I, I was, I met my, I met my wife there. I was chatting my wife up, my now wife up whilst I was trying to do it. So I know all about the distractions. That Case closed. Case closed. You were literally <laughs> wooing your wife to be as you were punching in, Winners and forced yeah. over from, from, from poor tennis player that was playing qualifying and, and working his ass off and going through the data at the end of that match to talk yeah. through the coach. So you're to blame. <laughs> I, I, I'm the one that's given you a job. You should be thanking me. <laughs> yeah, so actually I should be thanking you and uh, sending the invoice in the post. But 
But so therefore, so some of these companies have different procedures as well. So you were probably sitting there under the, the company that works for the qualifying and probably sitting there for the whole match. Other companies change the analyst, the guy that's in the box coding every hour. So if Iga goes and plays the US Open, she has three different guys interpreting whether she's, you know, hitting unforced errors and forced errors. Mamma mia. I mean, what? We're in 2021. We need to be, so we're not consistent. We're not consistent as a support, as a sport. So it really riles me around that. So actually, coming back to your question that I basically not answered, um, I honestly would say to you that might be that might be the KPI that some data companies are using, but other data companies will not be using that. What do you use for a net point? As a so KPI? what we do net, net appearances is anything past the service line. So effectively, past the service line, you've you've come in, and then we're looking at dry volley smashes, overheads, volleys, pickups, these sort of things. So what so, if? So what if? because this is my game style, a bit of huff and bluff and puff, <laughs> is I've, I'd like to say nail a forehand. I've hit a forehand, okay? Mm. Put you under pressure on your forehand. I've gone down the line into that lefty forehand, and you've missed the passing shot. But I'm... We don't I'm, count that. We don't count that. You don't, because for me, yeah. that's a net appearance. Yeah, but we don't count that. So another data company might. So... The other thing that we do, so when I say we don't count that, generally we don't count that. But I, I was talking uh, today with, with Piat and we were talking about attack, neutral and defense in ball three. So we're, we're coding what, what situation the player is in on ball three. It's subjective, attack, neutral and defense. I said to him, another player that I was working with, the coach said, get rid of neutral. Get rid of neutral because it's either attack or defense they're in after ball three. And, and, and I went with that that data set with him. So for like, so for me, I'm providing a menu. Of course, like if it's come, if they come up with something that's totally ridiculous that I'm like, this is a waste of your time to not do this, then I'm not going to, I'm going to voice my opinion, but I will adapt the analysis to that individual player. Now, now we're talking about, you know, when the player's going, you're, you're my guy for the year, this is what we want out of it. So can you see there where, one coach will go, no, we need the neutral situation to look at ball three. Another coach goes, no, I don't believe in that. He's either going to be an attack or, or, or defence. I can see how that works as an individual. So if you're, if, if I'm working with a player and you're my guy all year round and you're giving me that consistent data set for my player based on that, then and we agree that criteria, absolutely. But how... How do we get the? Not everyone can afford to have a, a data analysis with them all the time, um, you know. So, so how do we get to the point where that data is consistent? Because the other one that jumps to mind is, uh, again, I'm I'm playing against you. You go for a drop shot, which is a smart thing to do when you see the the how I move. But I happen to get there, and as I get there, I play a drop shot back to you. Is that a net appearance for your data set? That is. No, and, and this is the, and and the thing the thing is around all of this. It, what Matt Little said a great thing on a webinar the other day that I, I was speaking to him about. He, he said some of the the data he's been measuring from a physical point of view is not one hundred percent accurate, but it's still the same data set and the same person doing it with the. So, yeah. if that makes sense, yes, well, it does. So, if I was to then change my mind with the same player. On, on that situation, that's now inconsistent. Okay. That's subjective, really too exactly. subjective. Exactly. Imagine yeah. so when you said, like, the player comes to the net, 
Okay, it's not an interference unless they've touched the ball. Okay, uh, I imagine in 10 matches time, I go, no, I change my mind on that. We're going to actually now change the, the metric or the KPI. Now the data is inconsistent. Yep. So, you know, the other one on Twitter last night, and it's, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm pulling my hair out, what's left of it about it is, is now we're talking about getting rid of unforced and forced and just having errors. So I know some analysts now only put errors, whether it's forced or unforced. I think there's a massive value still of unforced and forced. I think there's a massive value with that. It's still subjective. It's still subjective because there's so many different factors around that. But just putting error, for me, it dilutes the ability to look at strategy. So with, so going back to Vavrinka, when we were talking about the Djokovic tactic at the US Open, Stan can hit through Novak. And when I say he can hit through Novak, he can, he can force Novak to miss. Okay, his ball quality is so good and his ball speed does not drop throughout the match. And he can also hit the ball four metres behind the baseline and for, for me, produce a forced error on Novak's racket. You I know, would call that a winner. So this is my thing on it. So again, it, I love it. I because, love it. Because I think that this is this is the whole thing on it. Because it's like I would say if Varinka's doing that to Djokovic, that it's a, a forced error comes under the winner cat. I would almost break it down into winner and error, but the winner. I then want to break down whether, or at least my player to know that it's not a clean, because there's not many clean winners hitting tennis. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but mm -hmm. but if Stan's absolutely forcing the issue through tempo, through ball speed, through yeah. movement of Djokovic, on Djokovic, for me, that's a winner for, for Stan. But but I guess even this conversation, it just showcases exactly. how, how difficult and challenging it is exactly. to get that criteria correct. Because we're also in the era at the moment. So I would say now, are we there as a sport yet? Absolutely not. Am I happy with what I'm doing? I'm constantly striving to improve yeah. on, on the dashboards, on the video, on how I present, how I deliver, how everything, what I'm, what I'm looking at. Because... Unfortunately, from my end, how many guys are like me operating in professional tennis? Now, believe it or not, there are more people than you would think doing a job like me on the professional tennis tour. However, the level of what they're doing, the, the level is totally all over the place. You know, there's no education uh, company that's, uh, that's doing analytics and, and, uh, in tennis. You know, there's no one. This is the, this is the gold standard. This is how you do it. Yeah. So we're all operating on our own metrics, our own KPIs, including the big data companies that everybody thinks when they see at the end of the set and it's a posh graphic, that that, that must be, they take it as golden. But it's not. We're not there yet. But is this not just also just shows the fractions within the sport? Now, this might not necessarily help you as a, a self-employed data analyst, but surely the sport and now where do we look do we look at grand slams do we look at itf do we look at atp wca there's so many separate entities but surely there's the ability there to to have first and foremost just some agreed criterias on what's a net point and what's not what's an unforced error what's this you know agree those kpis and then get consistent data sets coming out you'd think that within the sport we'd be able to do that I, I totally agree. And it's, it, it's like it is because it's the same as how the 
professional tennis tour is ATP, WTA, ITF, Grand Slams. They all have their own metrics around prize money, around everything is all split, right? So yes. yeah. it's a hot topic in tennis at the moment. And data is, you can throw data in the mix on that. You know, it's all a Fugazi Fugazi. You know what I mean? It's oh, okay, WTA. They have their own system. WTA actually have a system as a coach. You can log in and you can look at data sets if their player's been tracked at a tournament. But that company, I won't mention because I want to make sure that I'm not libelous on any of this. That company that creates this dashboard for coaches to log into is buying the data from another company and then repackaging it. It's like buying you know, an Audi and I'm going to, and I buy it grey and then I'm going to spray it red and change the badge and put a BMW on it. Why? I don't know. <laughs> you're, not, you're in a good position because you're doing a, a very good job with it. And, and you're one of the first that's in, in it, <laughs> you know. So when it does come to education and people finding out how to do things, you know, you're going to be right at the top of the pile. So fair play to you. I'm actually considering coming and working under you for a few years. <laughs> Getting out of this academy yeah. business. This could be the way, this Any could day, be the man. way, this could be the Any way day. forward. But my, my other one that, I was actually going to ask you about that. I still didn't get round to. So, so primary patterns again, yeah. being packaged up as ultimately for those listening, a primary pattern is something that a player looks to do seven or eight times out of 10. It's kind of their go-to serve their go-to pattern in, in certain situations. Now, what we're led to believe is that players are pretty much sticking to their primary patterns in high risk moments i.e. 1530s, 3040s, advantages, these sort of things. You said something earlier, and I just I want to clarify whether I understood this, that at the higher end of the game, players are actually varying what they're doing in those bigger moments, so they're not so predictable, whereas players a bit further down in the rankings are quite predictable on what they're doing in those bigger point moments. Did I understand that correctly? In general, this is what the, the data set that I have with my company and, and what we've, we're working on, that's what we're seeing. Okay. That's the trend we're seeing. And that's obviously when we're scouting and we're looking for, you know, scouting in tennis is an interesting one because some people go, scouting, scouting a tennis player, how can you do this? You know, it's, it's so random. It's so all of this. But what happens is players... I honestly think there's also a lot of players out there and might even be in the top 100 that are subconsciously they have patterns subconsciously. Why do they have subconsciously have patterns? Because they like, like humans, we're all humans in a pressure moment. We want to do what makes us feel comfortable. 100%. Yeah. So that's why there's a pattern there because they're constantly in an uncomfortable situation in, in X situation and they go to what feels best yeah. more often than not. So with Novak, more than anyone, more than Rafa, definitely more than Roger. We're probably coming off this a little bit, but I believe he's the best player ever to be process driven. And we talk about the process versus the outcome all the time. Yeah. Why do I believe that? Because there's so many examples of him in the biggest moments, in the biggest matches in the world. And, and I think two or three times he's beat Federer from match point down. Yeah. 
Yeah. I believe we all remember the Wimbledon 2019 on the return. I believe he's the only player that's cracked it. He's cracked. He's found the Holy Grail. What's the Holy Grail? 1540 Wimbledon final against Roger. He knows what he knows what he's going to do. He's happy with what he's going to do. He's confident with what he's going to do. He believes in himself and he's not taking in the whole moment. Whereas 99% of players, their performance is fe- affected around the score. You know, the I score affects Fed- what... Federer's was. I mean, if we go to that shot, I remember that shot well. Yeah. But actually, that this is an interesting one because that point I thought was really interesting because I would imagine that Djokovic was told that Federer likes his wide serve in big moments on the juice. And if you watch that point, Djokovic moves over for the wide serve and Federer went T and missed it by a couple of inches, but Djokovic was nowhere near it. And then Federer had the forehand that he just didn't hit well enough. The inside in forehand wasn't hit yeah. well enough. Yeah. So, so this is also where arguably there's going to be arguments for many years on who goes down as the greatest ever, but Federer felt that moment and ultimately, I guess, didn't, didn't execute in, 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 in those big moments. Absolutely right. But like I say, you know, the, the beauty of diving into the analytics deep is around the score, isn't it? It's, it's what does the player act like when they've, you know, a break is not a break until you hold, right? So what's that like? when your player has just lost serve and, you know, there's not the change of ends. So you're straight into the next game yep. versus you've lost serve and now you've got 90 seconds to sit down and think about it. Yeah, There's a trend to look at there. Yeah, and that's absolutely. what I'm doing with some players. I'm actually diving into that, that situation. With Iga, she she's, has a well-invested team. She has Daria, you know, psychologist with a full-time, physical trainer full-time with a physical trainer. This is something else I want to get over today. It's a bit of an interesting one with, not with Eager yet, but with other teams in the past. I'm almost like the glue for the team to um, use in different situations. So the conditioning coach might go to me, Mike, let's get some slow-mo video, play a wide backhand situation let's look at timing of split steps let's look at you know so the conditioning coach might utilize me a little bit psychologists might use me and go i want to see let's forget um you know the, the the overall match can you go these moments of the match over the season and i want to make a highlight reel to watch back with the player and actually get into the psychology of it and do their job so you know, I think that the role of, of what I'm doing, like I say, I really do want to stress it's not just, you know, numbers and and, and, and dashboards and reports. It's, it's a lot more than that. And I think we've not done that enough in tennis yet. Yeah. Um, that's, and that's when I talk about player development. That's player development. That's player development. You know, Eager is fortunate enough that she can have a specialist in every single area. And they're tapping into me at the right times to use me when they want to use me, if that makes sense. And is that a full-time role? So I would say, so So I so I have to plug this. So I set up after I was in, so when in 2018, I started working with Magnus and Stan, it had to be kept confidential until June 2019. And then I got invited in the players box at Wimbledon. This all of a sudden is a bit of a game changer because all of a sudden they see you on the BBC and Vavrinka's box. Everyone goes, what are you doing there? 
phone starts ringing and this sort of thing and gets around and then I'll get other requests from other players, agents, et cetera, et cetera. So then what I did, I created my own company called Sport Eye Analytics. And now I have a team of analysts working with me. I have a data engineer and we're providing analytics for several academies across the world. And we're hoping, I was hoping to announce it today, but we're signing with a very big federation in the next week or so, fingers crossed. And, you know, my goal really for the company is to, is to do it as, as well as possible, but to keep developing it. Yeah. Like, don't just sit there at this level and you've got a system that works and, you know, players are happy with it now. Because what players are happy with it today, they won't be happy with in a year. Mm-hmm. So you have to keep developing and looking. So the big one for me I was talking about this week with a few different people is wearable technology. Okay. OK, so the next gen, Misha was every player at the next gen. So that's top eight in the world under 21 for anybody that doesn't know. And every player was asked, do you want to wear the catapult data uh, heart monitor? But it was an option. Two of the players out of the eight were allowed to do that. And, um, and Misha, sorry, not allowed, but agreed to do this. And Misha was one of the two. Now, what I can do now with my data and, and the software is allowing me to do this is marry the wearable technology data with my data. And effectively, you could see four 30 or third sets, players' heart rate, fatigue levels, all of these sort of things. Now we're really getting into an exciting situation in tennis. At the moment, you cannot do this. You can only do this for the practice court, which has some value for off-season, et cetera. But it doesn't replicate the match. It doesn't replicate the stress levels and these sort of things. You know, I would love to see Federer's heart rate serving that serve right against Novak. How amazing would that be on the screen? And Matt Little's talked about this battle of the Brits. They were starting to do this, but marrying it with the actual, you know, not just go the player's heart rate is at the moment, the change of ends is X. Marry that with game situation, stress levels, all of these sort of things. So when people talk about tennis, men's tennis has reached the peak. You're never going to see Novak, Roger, Rafa again. This is, this is the golden era. That's not true. Okay, it's just, you know, it's just a time thing, because what will happen is technology in the game and training methods will develop where people will be able to play a higher level. Of course, you have other external factors. You have the gene pool of these guys. You have the environments, all these sort of things. But actually, there's there's way more layers we can add to tennis to make it more interesting. Really interesting subject. And, and as you know, I mean, I literally mention it on pretty much every podcast, you know, to, it's something I'm extremely interested in. And I, even there, you saying that from an entertainment point of view, if you could see Federer's heart rate on the TV, you know, like, because, because we are, and that's very apparent. And I don't want to jump it down a rabbit hole on this today, but we are in a real situation with our sport of, of where we're trying to take it. How are we going to get more people that want to watch it? How are we going to get bigger sponsors and bring a bigger, a bigger pool of money in and the whole, like we've talked about the whole ecosystem of the sport and certainly seeing some of those, those, those being readily, readily available on TV, I think would be really exciting as well. And, and how I think, sorry, Dan, how I think tennis could go, I hate to mention cricket because I don't really like it, but but in, in cricket, there's different forms of cricket, right? And you get, I think it's the T20 that's more fast-paced. You turn up for the day, the match is done, this sort of stuff. Ultimately, absolutely right, we're battling with attention spans and we're battling with worldwide audiences, et cetera, et cetera. I think the next-gen fast-four format 
And the next gen setup, I think there's real um, longevity in that. And I think that's going to attract the new audience, the players with the headsets, the iPad on the court, the DJ in the corner, the match is done within an hour and a half max, even if it goes to five short best of four sets, that could be almost another tour that players play or something like this. You know, I, I do think we are, we need to adapt to survive a little bit if we're going to stay relevant within the sporting spectrum. Very interesting. My last question before we go into our traditional quick fire round uh, on the podcast for a coach listening. So a club coach, an academy coach, somebody who, let's be honest, doesn't have the budget to be bringing someone like yourself on board. Let's even, if I even give the example, I'm you, I, I've tried this swing vision out. I've tried, you know, I'm definitely craving having some of this information. What would you say the kind of two or three best wins that they could have in terms, in terms of how they could use data to help improve them as coaches and in turn, ultimately help their players improve? Well, I know a lot of coaches do do chart at the side of the court, you know, with the, the notepad and pen, and I think this is great. And some of them use apps to do this and everything like this. I would actually just strip it back even to this. And I would say don't necessarily chart the match with 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 the, with the app or whatever, because you want to be into the match. You want to physically take that in and, and, and be in the boat with the player. I would buy a, a cheap GoPro. Uh, a camera mount and stick it at the back of the court of every tournament you go to with your player and, and start to get into, before you get into data, get into reviewing the match with, with video. If, if, I'm a, if I'm a football coach or soccer coach for international listeners, my, I, I coach the team on a Tuesday. I coach the team on a Thursday. We, we, we play the match on a Saturday. It's probably filmed even at a low level. And then we come in Monday and we, we watch it together as a team, give some comments, feedback, review, what could we have done better? And then we go into training on a Tuesday. In tennis, again, we're behind on this. We're getting better. You know, more, more clubs and courts are having the streaming cameras fixed and this sort of thing, but we're still way off that. I would get into um, reviewing the matches with the players with the video, not just taking some notes, and then, and then go down that feel route. We're very good in tennis of going down the route of feel, which has a value in many ways. Yeah. Empathy, psychology, relationships, et cetera. I'm not telling people to come away from this. But from reviewing the player's performance, how do we measure the player's performance? We measure the player's performance with two things, generally. Winning or losing and ranking going up or down. Okay, And that's how we measure or we go, yeah, I felt your forehand was good the other day. Or, 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 or Dan, yeah, do you know what? I was serving really well the other day. How do we know this? right? So without even just videoing to begin with, that has a massive value. If you're talking about wins from, from stats, we cannot get away with, you know, zero to four is the majority of the match. So, so what are the most important strokes? The serve is the most important stroke. You know, the, the most common rally number is what? Yep. Yeah, we cannot get away from that, right? So if I'm talking about easy wins now, club coach, big program at a club, let's let's do let's get some video out now and again. It doesn't have to be every single time, but as much as we can. And let's look at the, the first four, the first two touches of the tennis ball, the serve and the next ball, return and the next ball. And I'd genuinely start from that, you know, and I'd start from 
you know, what do we feel is our most effective serve on the juice side? What's our most effective serve on the ad side? What, what, which zone do we like to play from, you know, after that? Do we want to be inside the baseline? Do we want to be back up? Do we want to play our forehand? Do we want to play our backhand? You know, these sort of questions now we're already answering and, and, and the players will give those answers. And then now with some video and some basic charting around this area, we can start to see, is the, am I as the coach or as the player talking in riddles and myths? Or is there actually some reality to what we're talking about on the practice yeah. court? Because the practice court for me needs to, does need to be flipped a little bit. And what I mean by this, when I get some sticks sometimes about this is I'm not telling, don't do volume, don't do baskets, don't do this. Absolutely right. If we're doing technical development, if we're doing timing with the momentum, absolutely. Okay. But how often are we doing drills when the player serves and then we're feeding the next ball in and, and changing that and adapting that? Why am I talking about that? Because effectively, when we hit a serve, we land on one leg and we push off, we're coming off a one-legged one legged squat into a forehand or backhand and the movement. That is different to into the rally after you've hit two or three balls. Now you're into side to side, forward or back. You're into traditional you know, forehands and backhands, etc. So effectively, if we're coming off a one-legged squat into that position, you know, we know at professional level, where's the most where's the best place to return to break serve middle deep why because the player's coming off a one-legged squat and having to nudge and, and and maneuver the ball in an awkward position the same on return the return technique is 30 percent different to a normal forehand and backhand so playing those first two balls and, and focusing on those first two balls i guarantee will make you a better tennis player yeah guarantee it and in terms of the most influential metrics, if there was a certain metric to let's take myself, if I'm I'm working with a 15 year old, you know, decent player, possibly possibly coming close to getting an ITF junior ranking, and I want to track two or three metrics throughout the year, what would you advise me to do in terms of being the most influential? The percentage of forehand and backhand splits in the rally. So how much yeah. are they playing the forehand over the backhand? So yeah. top 100, on average, it's 16 strokes out of 20 are forehands. Okay. okay. So everyone's dominating with the forehand, and maybe unless you're Benoit Pair. Is that, is that, is that male? Is that, is male and female is virtually one. There's one stroke difference. Really? Oh, virtually, interesting. The same. virtually the same. And again, we're talking about a data set of 100, 200 players, right? So, you know, there's someone now listening going, yeah, well, Benoit Pair is plays ball three on the backhand all the time because he hates the forehand. Yeah, of course he does. But also the majority yeah. is this. Yeah. So this split, um, how much they're playing um, and how much they're able to execute the V patterns. So the big Vs and the, and the, and the small Vs, what do we mean by that? So yeah. wide, wide. Okay, wide, wide is generally the most effective pattern. Why? Because we're making the player run and we're hitting into space. Yeah. We're getting the player off the court. Again, it's not rocket science. So they're two off straight off the top of my head that I'd be looking at and, and to see if we can do that. But of course, you know, we have, it's individualized because if I'm working with a 15 year old that's six foot five, that's had a massive growth spurt to a 15 year old that doesn't, you know, hasn't developed yet, you, you, you're going to be playing around with that a little bit, aren't you? Because straight away, the serve's not going to be as effective in the sense of one's going to have a bigger serve so the, the, the smaller player needs a more accurate serve, yep. potentially. So, you know, they're the two genu genuine ones that I would, I would chuck out, Dan. I have to drag you back again. 
because I can hear these coaches at clubs and academies saying, yeah, you must have time on your hands. Da, 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 da. I'm probably one of them when we're talking about video analysis. And, and I think it's an issue. I do, I do think it's an issue in our sport because let's take James. James Buswell, who's a good yes. friend of yours. He coaches my son. Okay. So I'm coming at this from a coach, uh, an academy director and a parent. Okay. Let's say I'm paying James, let's give him, give him a good hourly wage. We're, we're paying him 50 euros an hour to give it, to give a lesson to my son. He sees him three times a week. Okay. My expectancy then for him to spend two hours watching a video to then spend more time watching it with my son in order to get those bits. It's extremely time intensive. So straight away, I would, my counter argument would be the education of the parents and the education and the value of this. We've just been through a pandemic where we couldn't go on a tennis court. So the value of having content, you might not bring it out straight away. This might be your wet weather lesson. How many coaches go coach in the UK, outdoor clubs, and how many sessions a year do they get cancelled? Or they, they do the session through the pissing rain and the quality of the session has to go down because the balls don't bounce, the players can't run, but they're doing it because they need the money. What if you created an area or designated or educated the parents and the players to go, it's a disaster weather-wise today. Let's go and have a look at your match on Saturday. Why surely that should be good coaching practice? And we do that in many of the sports but in tennis, we just don't get into those meat on the bones. And I think it was, you know, was it Djokovic that said before he worked with, with, with Craig, he never watched himself. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I mean, crikey. Okay, it's turned out okay, right? But we're talking about the next generation. We're talking about a generation of kids who are on social media, on the phone, they are stuck to a screen. So let's, let's utilize that a little bit and play around with it. So every coach out there now listening to this has got their own different situations. Some coaches might have an indoor centre where they can, they, have a, they can, you know, Edgebaston Priory, I was there the other week. They've got a really nice room in their indoor centre with a big screen where they could fit a squad in and actually get them in and, and, and dissecting some information. Another coach might have a, a shed as a, as a clubhouse. No, it can be done. Football. I'm not denying that it can be done. And you're right. You're right that it can be done. It is. And, you know, I would say, you know, that is is done to that level, certainly here at the academy. But I, I guess it's the level of having the ability to watch every match and, you know, being able to do that. And uh, one of the reasons I actually liked, I've been trialling Swing Vision. Mm. If I'm honest, I'm not convinced about the accuracy of information. So that's kind of been hard. There's been some difficulties a little bit with it, but I love that I get a 12-minute video Brilliant, like that. That's that. That is just almost that in itself. Absolutely almost, right. Almost forget anything else. For me, that's well worth having just for that. You know, the the natural edit happens, and because then I would, I'd watch, I'd watch all of my players' matches. If if someone presents me a 12, 15 minute video when I'm watching all the points, then that for me becomes manageable. I totally agree and, and great plug for Swing Vision because and any other apps out there, I'm sure, that can do that. But absolutely right. If you can get a cheap product on an iPhone that can do this, go and do it. But all, all I'm saying is probably with that question that you asked me is, you know, if we can change the way we deliver, you know, if we could, every coach out there now can build in an off-court video session, whether that's once a week, once a month, once a quarter, 
I think it's going to add massive value yeah, to player really development. Cool. I really do. And we just don't do it. It's not because culturally we've never done it. So why would you start doing that unless you're seeing other people do it, right? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Quick fire. Let's go. Forehand or backhand? Forehand. First serve or second serve? Second serve. Why? More important. Why? Because you're only as good as your second serve. Because ultimately, first serve percentages for the top guys is around 60 to 65%. Their winning percentage is very high, but they're still missing four out of 10. So the second serve sometimes could be the, the, the key point where you, you have to protect the second serve. The guys that don't have the best second serves tend to be lower down the rankings. Yeah, it seems to be quite a defining statistic. Massive. Second serve points one. Huh? And look at, look at Zverev. Great yeah. example. Yeah. No, the player that the returner now is loading up. It's not quick fire anymore, but the players we're loading up now on his second serve. And what's he doing now? They've gone down the route of hit another first serve on your second serve because that's just if we're going to go out, let's go out with a bang. You Absolutely. know. Return one or return two. Return two. Similar reason, I guess. Yeah, similar reason. Clay courts or hard courts? Clay, player development. It's the best surface in the world. Congratulations. Every, every club should have clay. Would you say sort of tennis academy? Okay, cool. Eager <laughs> <laughs> likes the clay. Eager thinks they're very good, everybody. So if it's good enough for the French Open champion, Absolutely. it's good enough for anybody else. Absolutely. And injury timeout or not? Oh, absolutely. Because you're dealing with players' health. Yes, it, this is, people are going to play around with it, but that's, if we were now soccer coaches... <laughs> We'd be driving, we're pulling our hair out more if we were soccer coaches and there's an injury, you know, every five minutes with a player going down with a broken leg. Tennis is not as bad as this. So I think we're doing okay. And, you know, you, you've had some serious situations with full body cramp and these things. So I absolutely, absolutely. One, one rule change you would have in tennis? On-court coaching. On-court coaching. And I know it's divided and I know there's the purists, but particularly I'm going to say this, right, from what I'm doing now. But I love... I love the ATP Cup and the, and the first year they had a strategy room. I absolutely loved it. I mean, look at that for the, for the fans. They're seeing their big screen TV team and they're discussing tactics, data, video, having this conversation. You know, I know there's the purists out there. We're going to say, play a thing for the self, blah, 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 blah. I've been a tour coach. I've been in the box for players. Everyone's coaching. You know, one, one, I'll tell you this story now. I don't know how legal this is, but there's one, uh, coach I was working with and I was, I was live coding the match for this player at the French Open giving them tactics to feed to the player during the match I don't know whether that's illegal or not but it they were do they wanted my my input but it's an exclusive <laughs> it's, a, it's an exclusive uh, and what's one rule I've said that you get you've thrown me off with that answer I tell you you <laughs> I thought Justin Gimmelstub had thrown a few things at me. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's your What's your favourite Grand Slam? Wimbledon. It's the Wimbledon is like uh, it's the mecca of tennis, right? Even uh, even the Spanish players know everyone, everyone turns up for Wimbledon. There was a time, wasn't there, when the Spanish and the clay quarters never played it, but it's uh, it's the mecca of tennis. It's still for me the most prestigious 
Most fun Grand Slam for me, Australian, uh, US Open. I love being around New York and I, I love the site. I love the, the atmosphere. The fans are very American style, aren't they? You know, they're, they're very unaware sometimes what's going on. But I think Wimbledon is is amazing. And I, I actually, actually going back to on-court coaching and these sort of things, I actually think, I hope Wimbledon just, just stays the same for 200 years now. I hope it doesn't change. You sound like a contradiction on <laughs> it's the one tournament they're just like the kid you watch it I just keep it the same no advertising yeah it's an event it's almost not a tennis tournament it's an event isn't it yes it's, absolutely it's completely different and who should our next guest be on control the control uh, one of two Claudio Pistolesi or Magnus Norman very good I'm going to add them both to the list and you seem like just the man to get them both <laughs> Mike Maybe. I Loved it. What a great chat. Just, yeah, I, I've learned loads from that. You know, I really have. I think there's, I, I agree with you, there's a long way to go, but I absolutely tip my hat to you that you've you've gone into this niche. You know, you, you're doing an incredible job. I've heard it firsthand from coaches that are working with you with fantastic players and they're not always the easiest people to keep happy. So, so, so well done in what you're doing. Uh, it's great to have you out for a few days at the Academy and I look forward to more discussions with you over the next few days and the next few years, because as this continues to grow. Thank you, Dan. It's been a pleasure and, and stay safe and healthy. And anyone wants to connect with me, just find me at Mike James Sports on social media and, and we'll have a chat. Well, being a, a tennis geek that I am, I absolutely loved that chat. And as always, I've got Vicky beside me. And I, as you went through that, I was unsure how you were going to take it because you're maybe not as nerdy as me on the tennis stuff. No, I'm not. I, no, I was sceptical, I'll admit. I, I didn't think I'd enjoy it as much as I did, but I really did, actually. For me, it was really interesting hearing all the ways that the data is being used. I've always been a bit like, there's so much information, but how do you then apply it? I think you both talked about it. Um, you know, it can be a bit overwhelming for coaches. It certainly can be overwhelming for players, but I found it really interesting kind of why people have brought him in to help. But you must have been in your element there. No, absolutely. And, and, and I have to say, I thought Mike went into much more detail than Craig when he came on. And, you know, that's maybe with my relationship with Mike that there was a bit more openness. But I guess it's it's like anything, you know, data analytics is not going to change your life just by doing it. You know, just as nutrition isn't, just as sports psychology isn't, you know, these kind of additions to anybody's programme, you absolutely need to have a purpose and, and that would be a massive takeaway for me from this is have the purpose, know what it's for. Is it scouting? Is it player development? Is it comparisons? You know, what is that? And then what parts of data do you want to really double click into to, to learn more about the player? And, and, and I guess that's a difficult thing to do on a large general scale. And if I take us back to when we met all of those years ago at, at Wimbledon, you know, we were just doing very, very general statistics. And that was, what, 20, 25 years ago. And I'm 20. not, and I'm not <laughs> sure that it's actually moved on that much in, in, a, in a generic sense within the sport. I think it has. We were putting in really basic information. So the first year, which was 2000, all we were inputting was... Um, was the first serve in? Was it a double fault? Was it an ace? 
uh, who won the point and how the point was won. So whether it was a um, forced error, unforced error or a winner, I think that was that was pretty much it. I think by the second or third year, we were starting to put where the serve um, had been hit. But other than that, that, that was all we were putting in and listening to Mike then, there's a lot more information that he's getting now that we certainly weren't picking up at Wimbledon. Yeah, but that's my, that's I'm talking about in a generic sense. So when we talk about these big companies that are bringing the data sets to tennis, it's still not necessarily moved on in terms of how specific it is, you know, which is why players need the likes of Mike, you know, and there is a real niche within the sport right now because you can then set your own KPIs, you can set your own parameters to the sort of data that you want. And I certainly know the players that I work with, if we could afford such a service, it, w- it would really make a massive difference to, to player development and obviously to the scouting as well. So give us an example. How would you use that with one of the players? I think the big one for me that stands out and I spoke to Craig or Shanassi about this, and now Mike, was about how you measure what a net point is. And and that didn't sit easy with me because Craig's interpretation of that is if you have two feet inside the baseline, and Mike's interpretation of that is if you have two feet inside the service line. Now, what that doesn't pick up, so if I, as an example, have a player that I'm looking to apply pressure to the opponent to win points through coming forward. If they hit an approach shot and they, through the approach shot, apply enough pressure that the the passing shot is then missed, to me that is absolutely a net point one. And that is one of the strategies that we are using in order to put the opponent under pressure. So I would be setting different boundaries within that around net points as a, as a starter. And I think we talked about it in the podcast as well, running up to a drop shot and hitting a drop shot back. To me, that's not a net point. So it is very personal. It's very individual. And, and as with most things, I guess, in tennis, it goes to this fact that there really isn't a whole lot of generic things that happen in tennis. It, it is very individualised. And if I could get those points, and then a key thing that I know Mike does a lot of and he spoke about is then having the video to back that up. So to be able to then show the player, okay, these are the 12 times this happened. These are the video clips to go with that. You know, what do you think? Get your player's input because... Every player will have their own communication style. Some people will want to feel as if they are making the decisions. Some people are more visual learners. You know, there's different ways and you've got to know the individual that you're working with. So there's quite a lot of complexities to it. And it's it's a, it's a massively helpful tool if you've got the resources to afford it. And I know you and the coaches at the academy talk to the players a lot about primary patterns. But what Mike said seems to contradict that a bit. Yeah, again, I thought that was very interesting. So for those listening, a primary pattern is something that you do seven or eight times out of 10 and tends to be a pattern that you would go to in the bigger moments. And, you know, I think it was the Navy SEALs that said that under immense pressure, you will sink to your default setting. And I think that's a big one around tennis as well. People think that 
best players step their games up, whereas actually they don't. They just go to a, a strong default setting in those moments and maybe those ones a little bit lower are the ones that go off the charts and try and finish the point early or whatever it might be. So it, I, I thought it was very interesting because what Mike alluded to was that the best players in the world are actually changing up <laughs> a little bit more evenly what they're doing in those moments, which would kind of go against primary patterns and say, well, actually, players are starting to read us now, so we have to have the ability to do X or Y and do them equally as well from different situations. Now, that's a one that I'd love to dig into a little bit more with Mike and find out a little bit more information on that. But I think that's certainly an important point and something for us as coaches to be aware of as well. And the next bit that I guess we haven't spoke about, we've talked about the inconsistencies of KPIs, and but there's also, I guess, the inconsistency of who is doing it human error well yeah complete human error and, and and quite often it's interns that would be doing such jobs and i have to share that story when we go back to our time working at wimbledon and i actually remember i don't know if it was you who was distracting me but i was we were certainly distracted at the time and all of a sudden we'd missed three points in the Wimbledon booth. So we quickly kind of put the score, or put what happened in, but guessed wrong. And <laughs> and that was linked directly to the BBC feed. What court were you on? Oh, definitely centre. Oh, no. <laughs> centre court one, one of, one of the big courts. And it came up and, and Johnny Mack, who was commentating, actually said live on BBC, oh, I think the statisticians have got that <laughs> wrong there. And the score was let's say 30 all or 40-30 and we'd actually put it as 15-40 so we were completely wrong with the input that we had and we quickly corrected it and then you could see that it would change on the BBC feed and yeah not not a great moment I'll pretend that it wasn't me it was probably one of my colleagues that made the, <laughs> made the error I definitely wasn't there <laughs> if, if anybody from IBM is listening but I but I would say it just goes to show you know it when we're talking about statistics 51% to win a tennis match for the most part you know we're talking about a game of really small margins and, and unless you're getting absolute accurate data it's kind of pointless having it was that not the best student job ever though oh two weeks at Wimbledon watching tennis matches and getting paid for it it was amazing it was amazing and, and I know that they still do do it so any tennis players that haven't come across that yet that you're at uni you're looking for a job in the summer certainly look out for that because it, it's a fantastic opportunity and we well we we've got three kids out of it <laughs> I wonder if we do have the only IBM children. I don't know. We <laughs> want to look into as well. Another stat. Absolutely. We'll have to get in touch with Megan, <laughs> Megan, the team to to see how that was. And yeah, as and moving moving on to you know the next the next couple of weeks, we've as always got lots of great guests coming to you. Uh, one little shout out I'd like to have is a big a big thank you to the Tennis Coaches Support Network on Facebook. Um, a fantastic group of coaches. There's about 600 coaches on that group. I would certainly say any tennis coaches, go and check that out. It's well worth getting involved in. It's quite unique in terms of how the support does happen. And they've been massive supporters of the podcast as well. So a big shout out to all the guys and girls in, in that group as well. 
And many of you have been in touch with us as well over the last week to say that you would like us to bring back the panel for the French Open to preview and review the tournament. So we'll do our best to bring the panel back together for you. Well, a bit of an exclusive, actually. I've just had the final panellist give me the thumbs up and OK Any this hints? Morning. Any hints? Well, the only hint I would give is we haven't gone too far away from a winning formula. <laughs> Excellent. So good fun then. Absolutely. So that to come in the next couple of weeks as well as lots of amazing guests. If you've listened this long, thank you for staying with us. Thank you for all the great feedback. Thank you for your ratings and reviews. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables.